that last walk I took from my office to my car, I felt like I was walking on clouds because now I was leaving that for good. So it is absolutely possible. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Before we get started, let's check in with Cody. How's it going, man? Hey, what's going on, Justin? So this is actually a kind of eventful weekend, or eventful week, I should say. So for the past year, we've been trying to get this deck done. The deck that we had before was just falling apart. Finally got a buddy of mine to come in as a contractor, build this thing up. It looks awesome. Super excited about that. Had a really fun dinner date on the water back on Friday. And yeah, just starting again, like I mentioned last episode, to enjoy the summer weather. How about you, man? I've actually had a pretty awesome week the last week. We left Boston last Wednesday and hit the road. And we're about a third of the way through a 6,000-mile journey that we're going to take in my little camper van. So currently, we've been hopping around just west of Denver, out in like Rocky Mountain National Park, Estes Park, some of those areas, just checking out the mountain range. My mom and niece flew out. It was my niece's first time to ever actually fly anywhere and also to obviously get to see the Rocky Mountains. So it's been really fun getting to show them around. And I miss Colorado a ton. So it's just been great really running the camper van, you know, through its paces and getting to see what it's like actually living on the road. But before we keep going, let's take a quick moment for our sponsor. So what do you do if you're browsing the internet and you don't want marketing companies to see every single move that you're making? incognito mode, right? Wrong. Even with incognito mode, your internet service provider can legally sell your information to ad companies. That's why if I want actual privacy, I'll go online using ExpressVPN. So ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, so phones, computers, tablets, even on your smart TV. So it's easy to protect all your internet data. Protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash fyshow, and you can get three extra months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash fyshow, expressvpn.com slash fyshow to learn more. So today we have Dustin Heiner on the show, and this guy is jazzed up about what he does. I mean, you could just tell how enthusiastic he is about real estate. And he also talks about his transition from a traditional job, or as he calls his J-O-B, just over broke, into full-time real estate investing and just the power that it has unleashed for him and his family. But I don't want to give away the whole episode. Take it away, Dustin. I would have to say for me, it really started when I was really, really young. Actually, it wasn't necessarily personal finance. It was more of just independence or freedom and not have to always work a job. So I, from the very, very young age, I started my own business or actually I wouldn't say it's my own business, but I threw papers or I had a paper route. So I'd ride on my bike and deliver newspapers, banging garage doors and stuff with the, with the papers. And so I got a little bit of taste of working for myself, which was rather entertaining and fun. But at the same time, it wasn't, you know, being completely independent, but I was able to make my own money. Then I got a job working at Walmart in like high school. That was horrible working for somebody else. And 
when I got my first paycheck and saw how much money was taken out, I was like, this is nuts. I can't believe how much money gets taken out. So, but if we fast forward a little bit, I started many, many businesses because I was always wanting to be financially independent, really just really being independent, not have to rely on a job. So fast forward a little bit, I created a convenience store, had a had a pizzeria as well, and a actually a skateboard manufacturing business. I did that as well. Started a graphic and website design company. I was trying every single thing possible to not have to work a job. And I, I use the word uh, job as an acronym, J-O-B, which is just over broke. And so I was just living just over broke. But it, after doing all these businesses, while having a job, I started investing in real estate. I just bought one property. And from that, I got 250 no, it was like $350 in one month from that one property. And I realized, man, at one property at $350, if I get 10, that's $3,500. If I get 20, that's $7,000 a month. And so I just saw that. And then that's what really got me down the path of investing in real estate. And so you just named off like a ton of different businesses that are like not even really that related. So as you're going through these and you're thinking about like spinning up another one, what are you using as your criteria to say this is a business worth going after? So at the beginning, it was really whatever comes across my path, whatever came across my path, let me go ahead and do it. I had a a friend that was really big into skateboards and manufacturing them. And I said, let's let's team up. Let's start building skateboards together. And so that was an opportunity that came in front of me. Another one was the internet and creating websites. So just opportunities as they came up, I was like, let me just run with it. Now, because I, ha- I am successful and employed, I, I don't have a job. I don't need a job. Opportunities come, but I need now to pick the businesses that I create. And so if I were to go back and give myself any advice, it would be finding passive income type of businesses, businesses where you work one time, you get paid over and over again. So now my criteria, because like you said, Justin, I definitely had, there was like a bunch of different things that didn't really relate to each other. I just was taking opportunities. Now, every business that I start, I look for how I can create it so that it's passive income where I only work one time and I either hire other people to do the work or I have systems in place that work for me. And so all the businesses that I now create all revolve around working one time again, paid over and over again. So on the same thread of building businesses, I think one of the most important thing that happens when you build a business is the new skills you acquire. Like regardless of the money, regardless of the passive income and the freedom, the skills you acquire, one, just makes you feel great about yourself. You're like, hey, I did this. I learned this new skill. I challenged myself. And two, now you have this skill that kind of is another asset on your tool belt. Could you talk about as you're going through the process of developing these new businesses and learning these new skills, what types of things were helping you learn that skills? Was it mentors? Was it courses? Was it just going in and trying and failing a bunch of times? So I'm really frugal and it's really hard for me. Now, even though I paid a stupid amount of money to college and university to just get a piece of paper, even though I paid a lot of money in that, paying for a mentor or courses was not something that I did just because I was like, ah, eh, I could figure it out. Let me just go ahead and figure it out. But in hindsight now, looking back, I realized how much money I spent in doing things the wrong way. Now, I did learn and I did start doing things right, but it cost me a lot in the end, almost as if I did actually more than if I you know, hired a mentor or got a mentor or hired a coach or something like that. But the things that I did was I literally just did it. And if it worked, I kept it in the business or in my brain to continue to move forward. And if it didn't work, I ripped it out. And I'll tell you, as I failed more, my businesses got better because I realized what didn't work. Now, the things that did work for some reason, and it might be a lot of people, but 
it didn't really stick in my brain as much as a failure. Like buying a rental property and not knowing that if the electricity, and this is something that, that literally has happened twice, like back to back, I was buying two properties at once and I didn't know that if the electricity had been off for over a year, this was back in 2010, so there was you know a lot of properties that were vacant. If it had been off for over a year, I needed to have the entire building, the entire house, reinspected by the city and then brought up to code. And so I found out that it had old, it wasn't knob and tube, but it was one right before that. It was an actual breaker. But anyways, I had to redo the entire electrical. And in redoing the entire electrical, that was $3,500 per house. That wasn't accounted for. Now I'm realizing if I would have had somebody that would actually show me that, hey, watch out for these sort of things, I would actually be much better. I by not actually having a coach or a mentor or even getting a course. And right now on the internet, it's so much better. It, right now, with prevalence of courses and coaching and everything because of the internet, it makes it so much easier to find. Back when I first started, back in 2005, 2006, there really wasn't anything like this. Actually, kind of take that back. There were like, quote unquote, real estate gurus that would, this is the scenario that I went through. So I was, I can't remember what time, but it was, well, I was watching TV really late at night once, and they have, there was this infomercial on, hey, this we invest in real estate. We're coming to your area. We have a free seminar. You come and you learn everything about real estate. You're going to be an investor making millions and millions of dollars driving Ferraris. I'm like, well, shoot, let's do it. I'm going to go. So I went to that one-hour seminar that was free. So high level, so nothing, just all hype and pumping you up. And then they said, okay, now you guys go in the back and you're going to basically going to give us $1,000 for a two-day seminar. I'm like, you know what? $1,000, I got a credit card. Let me go ahead and do it. So I went back thinking, this $1,000 is going to give me everything that I needed to learn. So I went back there. It was all hype, like really high pressure. Get in there. I went, paid $1,000. Then I went to that two-day seminar. It was so high-level overview of like literally everything. You could not take action steps on anything. But what they did at the very end, and they were sneaky. Right in the middle of the court of the seminar, they said, everybody, what's really going to help you with real estate is if you actually increase your credit limit on your credit cards, it'll help you X, Y, and Z, your credit score and everything. It was going to be great. But what happened was they got you to do that. And the next day they said, now sign up for this $40,000 course on how to do rental properties. Like rental properties was $40,000. You have flipping is like $60,000. If you're doing wholesaling, that's $30,000. And I said, if I had that money, I wouldn't give it to you. I just learn on my own. So all that to say, now there are so many great ways to learn. You don't have to spend or be suckered into spending forty dollars or $50,000. With nowadays, there's so many things online, so many people that just want to help actually giving away for free. Just learn from them and then go from there. But the education is huge. You learn so much, but then you also learn what other people did wrong. I love sharing with what I did wrong because it helps people know that, hey, don't do this. Dustin did this and it screwed him up. So don't do that. Do, do it the right way. <laughs> So one thing I wanted to ask before we got too far along was you mentioned like some of these things when you're young, having this entrepreneurial spirit, but then you just talked about how you spent way too much money on a college degree that it doesn't sound like you really ended up using. So I'm curious, like what made you make the decision to actually go to college? And then what made you make the decision to kind of give up on a traditional path and just to go straight entrepreneurship? I think it was because answering the question of why I went in, I was always told by my parents, 
go to college. Well, they said, don't go into debt. I wasn't really taught to save money, which was, it's a bummer. I now have switched that now where I'm teaching my kids. They literally save 50% of every penny they get from birthdays or whatever. So they save 50%, 10% we give to charity or give to God. 20% goes to mommy for to pay for responsibilities. So they know that, hey, we have to have responsibilities to pay for electricity, food, and all that sort of stuff. But 50% goes into savings. I was taught you go to school, you then go to college, you get a career, and then you get a house and you know, have wife and kids, and then you eventually just retire and then they take care of you from there. Well, that didn't work. And I'm glad you asked that question, Justin. So let me tell you a little story. So I was working a county job, working for the county in California, doing IT work. And I'd been working there for like 10 years. I had good seniority. Everything was going really, really well. I just thought I was going to retire. Everything was going to be great. I did have other businesses, other side businesses that I was starting, like the skateboard manufacturing business and all that sort of stuff. But what really pushed me over the, the edge. So my wife and I, we have four kids. Well, when our fourth child had just been born, I went on paternity leave. That's where the dad goes home and stays with the wife and with the kids and helps out. Well, when I get back, I'm basically gone for a week. I get back and I'm working for, for a week. And on a Friday at 3.30 p.m., I get a call from my boss's, boss's, boss's secretary. So like the top dog, I get a call from the secretary on 3.30 on a Friday. I'm like, hello? And she says, Dustin, would you please come to the office? The boss needs to see you. And I said, sure. And I hung up the phone. And then I sat there thinking, why would they be calling? Why would my boss's, boss's, boss, the top dog need to see me? And so as I sit there a little longer, I started remembering that a couple of weeks, maybe even months before I went on paternity leave, that there were some rumors or some rumblings going on. And it wasn't really anything substantial that the, we, there might be layoffs, that there is not enough money to provide for the people. So you might have to do layoffs. And as I sit there, I realize, okay, I got to get up. So I start getting up and then I start to walk down the hallway and thinking about everything that just, I just had my fourth child or my wife did. She's the amazing one. We just had our fourth kid. And as I'm walking down this hallway, my feet start to feel heavy. Like they're almost in lead bricks. And walking down the hallway, I just get more and more nervous and more and more thoughtful about what's going to happen. So as I turn the corner and my boss's door is closed, the secretary says, Dustin, would you please have a seat? And sheepishly, she's looking at me kind of like trying to grin, trying to like console me because she knows exactly what's going on. I have no clue. And, and her looking at me, consoling me, I start to think, uh-oh, am I actually going to get laid off? Like this is blindsiding me. I just had my fourth kid. So thoughts of, am I failure as a husband? Am I a failure as a father? I'm, how am I going to provide for my kids? They've even putting a roof over their head, let alone giving them food to eat. And then on top of that, all this career that I've been trying to build up 10 years working here is now, is it going to be taken away? And as I sit there, my head starts to get really sweaty. My hands get all clammy. I get nervous. My heart starts pumping, then opens the door to my boss's office. And out walks a lady with a piece of paper. She's noticeably distraught. She's noticeably thinking her whole world's rocked. She walks out. She's not necessarily crying, but I could tell something just happened. My boss says, Dustin, would you please come in? Well, I walk in and he hands me a piece of paper. Lo and behold, I actually get laid off after having so much seniority. And this is, remember, I'm working for the government. Who gets fired or who stops working for the government? Nobody does, but I did. And so with the most secure job ever, with the most seniority and everything, I got raises every time my bosses loved me, I still got laid off. And as I'm walking back to my office, I realized two things. Number one, I absolutely needed to get a job to provide for my family. I needed to make money to provide food. 
And so I worked really, really hard. I got on the phone and started calling every single department. And praise the Lord, I was able within a week to get another job at the sheriff's office doing the same exact work, same exact seniority, pay everything because I had really good reputation because I did really good work. So they picked me up right away. So I was really blessed there. But the second thing that I realized that I needed to do was to never, ever let this happen to me again. And that moment, I realized I am now going to change my perspective of what I put value in in myself. And so usually when I got the question where somebody says, hey, Dustin, what do you do? I would normally say, well, I work IT. I do you know, technical, you know, technology work at the government. That's what I would normally respond. From that point forward, I realized my value is not in my job, that just over broke job. My value is in number one, myself, number two, my God, number three, my wife and my kids. And so what I decided to do was I changed what I would say. From now on, I realized that I was now a real estate investor. So whenever anybody would ask me, hey, Dustin, what do you do? I'm a real estate investor. Now, it might so happen that 100% of my pay comes from my job. That's my side job. I'm an investor. And so I started telling everybody that over and over again. And as I did that, I realized it's possible because I started buying one property after another, after another. And then as I kept growing my business, people kept coming to me and say, hey, I want to invest with you. Here's money that can we invest with you? Or here's a property I need to sell. Can you buy it from me? Or I need to rent a property. So my business got bigger and bigger as I built my business and told everybody about it. So from there, having getting laid off, but first starting with a college degree, getting laid off and realizing I should not be building my life on a career. I need to switch to where now I'm building my own business. And so with that, I became an investor right then and there. And then when I was 37 years old, so it was about nine years later after I made the decision, I was actually able to quit my job because I had 30 plus properties and I didn't really need to work anymore. That is a perfect segue into my next question, Dustin. And you're someone who definitely doesn't like taking orders, not orders anyway, in the sense that things that don't add value. I got so many orders at my old job where I just kind of do something for a week and I have no idea why I was doing it. And you're also someone who's super entrepreneurial, someone who really values their freedom. Why did it take you nine years to quit that job, especially with 30 rental properties? Because I can imagine as someone with your skill set, someone who's not afraid to go out there, try all these businesses, was it a monetary thing and you were waiting till the income replaced the job? Were you trying to wait until your income hit a certain percentage of what you were making at that government job? I'd love to hear kind of the psychological battle that was going on there. There was a huge battle and a big one, obviously, is I had a wife and I had four kids and I wasn't, it would be really, uh, my wife wouldn't let me, but it'd also be foolish to just up and you know quit. But so in six years, I had 19 properties and I was making $6,500 a month from my passive income. And with those properties, I literally did not need to work anymore. But it was so hard giving up that W-2 job, that guaranteed paycheck. It was so hard. So at six years, I literally could have. But I was so nervous with my family. And then it took me another two, almost three years. It was like eight and a half to almost into nine years that I finally quit. It took me that long to realize not just my value is now in my investing as I'm an investor. Now I've realized that my boss, if it's the government or somebody owns a business, they're only paying me just enough to keep me working, but not so much that takes money out of their pocket. And so for everybody listening to this, I want you as well as myself to realize that your value is not what somebody can pay you. Your value is internal inside of you. And so if you realize that, that whatever somebody is paying you, that's nowhere near what you are worth. And when I realized that, it was probably about year eight 
And here's another thought. It took me like six months longer to actually quit my job because I was refinancing like six properties at a time at one time. And they really, banks frown highly when you quit your job in the middle of a refinance. So I wouldn't be able to get that (laughs) refinance. So I continued with the refinance as soon, literally as soon as that paperwork went through, I cashed out because I like the method where I buy the property, refinance it and pull money out and buy another property. Once I got that cash in my bank, boss, we'll see ya, I'm done. So that's the whole process of me taking longer because getting rid of that W-2 job, it's so reassuring every two weeks or whenever you're getting that paycheck. But what then, I realized my value is so much more than they can actually pay me. I realized that even though I was making $75,000 a year from my J-O-B, that just overbroke job, I was losing money because the value that I can build into a business is so much more than they could ever pay me. Now I'm so excited. Now I make so much more money than they could ever pay me. That's actually what I was just about to ask because I feel like that had to be a big part of it is like how much was your W-2 job bringing in? So you said 75,000. It sounded like your rental property passive income was about 80,000. Do you think there's a point where somebody's making enough in their W-2 job to where, you know, maybe this discussion isn't as true to you? Like where, you know, like let's say they're making $200,000 a year or maybe they're just not sure that they would be successful if they tried to push themselves into a business. I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, what is the counter argument? Like what people maybe shouldn't consider quitting their W-2 and trying to go out and start their own business? For me, it really comes down to being able to take care of my responsibilities. Now, I'm very, very frugal. I'll give you a big example of how frugal I am. So I have plenty of money. I could go buy a big house, but I was moving out of California. So when I first started investing, I lived in California. I now live in Arizona, but when I first started investing in 2005, 2006, I was in Cal- I lived in California, but I was buying properties in Ohio and Texas and like Arizona, far away from me. And so I was able to start investing because in 2005 in California, was, prices were crazy, but I was able to buy cheaper homes. And so that's one thought is that I have those properties that are secure. They, they are secure. It's not like a business that can actually fluctuate. Like if customers don't keep coming in the door, I still make money. In fact, with the lockdown of, of coronavirus and everything, I, they said, do not leave your house. Well, I made so much money not leaving my house because my properties do the work. Now, the reason why I was talking about being frugal, when I lived in California, I had properties in different states and Arizona is one we wanted to move into, move to, and so we had a rental property. Well, at the time that I was quitting my job, I was thinking, you know what? I don't have a job. I'm location independent now. I can move wherever I want. And my in-laws, they literally live like three miles away from the house that I was I had as a rental. Tenants were moving out. And I was thinking, I don't have a job or I don't need a job. I'm quitting or I've already quit. Why don't we move into that? So our rental is 1,250 square feet. And I have my wife and my four kids. And so that shows that, hopefully it shows that we're really frugal. But at the same time, we keep our expenses down. Like if I if I go spend a ton of money, it's only gonna be things that we love. Like we don't, we only have one car because I stay at home, we homeschool. And my, my wife does the homeschooling. She has the easy, sorry, I have the easy job of making money. She has a hard job of homeschooling the kids. And so with that, we only need one car. So we only have one car. I was driving my 2007 Honda Odyssey until it literally broke. And then I had to buy another car. And thinking about buying a bigger house, yeah, I'd love to buy a bigger house, but If I did, right now the prices are pretty high. I'd rather wait until there's a correction to come down. So everything to say for every single person and to answer what you're asking, Justin, like with somebody who's making maybe $200,000, my expenses were so low that even if my rents got cut in half, like half of the people paid, 
I was still going to be totally fine. And so that's my suggestion is if anybody's going down the route of quitting their job, being successfully unemployed, if they're going to do that, you need to have not just your income and your expenses like separate, uh, meaning don't just think, let me just cut, 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 cut my expenses. No, you also got to increase your income. But at the same time, you don't want to just keep increasing your income. You also need to be aware of your expenses and cutting them down. So that's my suggestion for anybody is knowing that you have enough money coming in. Even if it got cut in half, your expenses are still going to be taken care of. So you don't have to go back and get another job. But just to clarify, these are passive income businesses. These are building some kind of thing that takes a lot of work up front. It's not like you could have an Uber driving job on the side. And then if all of a sudden you can't drive Uber anymore, then it goes to zero. So just, I just wanted to clarify that, that you're talking about specifically businesses that are passive income after X amount of work at the beginning, right? 100%. Yes, absolutely. So when I start my, any new area that I start investing, I build the business. So I find property managers. I, I basically do so much work in the beginning, but then I don't do any work because the properties do the work for me. And I'll give you an example. And the reason why it's passive income is because I have a business where other people do the work. So imagine this, and I will gladly buy a house from somebody who bought it as a rental property, didn't set up the business right, didn't do everything right, didn't account for all the expenses, and was losing money for four or five years. And they're like, man, I'm just done. I want to get out of this property. I'll buy it from you, but this is my price. This is how much I can buy it from. I've done that many times, and I get that property, and it makes me money because I buy it right. Now, get, imagine like this. If you don't build the business first, it'd be equating to something like this. Now, everybody knows what a convenience store is. Imagine getting a location, basically a building, and you open the door and you put a candy bar box, a box of candy bars inside of that without doing anything else. You're not going to have a business. Same thing with real estate. So with the convenience store, you're going to do more than just put a box of candy bars. You're going to get the shelving units. They're called gondolas. You're going to get the countertops. You're going to get the fountain machines, the cold storage. You're going to get bank accounts, employees, cash registers. You're going to build the business first before you put any piece of inventory into the business. And so same thing with real estate, with rental properties, you build the entire business. You get property managers, you get contractors, you get inspectors, roofers, plumbers, handymen, wholesalers, so many other people. You get everybody else to do the work. And then once you have that business set up, then just like a candy bar is a piece of inventory, I view my houses, my 30 plus houses, not necessarily as candy bars, but they're inventory. So every single time I buy another property, it's another piece of inventory I'm putting into my business. From there, because the business is set up, just like what you said, you said, Cody, being passive income, I literally work 30 minutes, not a day, not a week, 30 minutes a month. And the reason why is because I just get my statements from my property managers because I've already set the business up the way I want it to be, make sure everything's looking good. And then I put it away and I go travel with my family or do whatever I want. So yes, it's the passive income businesses that I love. And earlier when you were talking about getting into real estate, you were talking about how you were living in California where the prices were just too high. So you're investing in out of state, you know, other places where they're cheaper. And like you said, I mean, a lot of markets, real estate's very high right now. And so people may not feel like they can afford to jump in in their current, in the market that they live in. But I also know that people have a big mental hurdle on trying to invest from something that maybe they never even get to physically go see the property. They're definitely not there around it weekly, monthly, you know, whatever it may be. So what advice do you have for people who are in a market where they can't afford to get into the real estate game, but they really want to? A big question right now, and that's a fantastic question, Justin, and there's so much in there that I wanted to a little bit of unpack. So I get a lot of questions from many, many people, like, is now the right time to invest? Should I wait? Like, should I wait until, you know, a year or something where 
market comes down or should I buy right now? And honestly, the answer is yes to both. Yes, you should buy right now and yes, you should wait. And the reason why, and I'll unpack that a little bit more. So if you're buying the right properties in the right areas that make you a minimum, and this is what I teach all my students, making a minimum of $250 in passive income every single month, if you do that, you will be successful in the up, down, or sideways market. Remember, I started investing in 2005 and 2006 when it's going up. I bought those properties. I still own them. And on paper, they might have cut down in half, but I still made passive income. I was still able to feed my family every single month because all it comes down to is you add up all your expenses, you add up your also your income, the rent that you can make from that property. That difference there is your passive income. Now, the reason why I say now is a great time to invest is because if you're investing in certain areas, remember I was in California in 2005, I couldn't invest there, I went to Ohio. I literally flew there. And of all the 30 plus properties that I've either owned or currently own, I've only seen one of them. And that was when I first got started because it was so hard. Like my wife said, you better fly out there, make sure of this, that, you better check out properties. But since then, because I built the business, because I now I know now how to do it, which it does take, it's basically a science. You do X, Y, and Z. You do all these steps. You can literally buy houses sight unseen, meaning you physically there, but you have number one realtors. You have number two property managers. You have inspectors. You have wholesalers. You have other people giving you information putting that in your brain, disseminating that and making wise decisions. Now, when you're talking about, you know, investing very, very far away from you, that's the only way that you can do this successfully is if you build the business and you have, you put in people inside that business that you trust, that communicate well, that'll take care of your properties like it's their own. And it takes time. It's a science. And so like Cody said, it takes a lot of work up front to build this business, but once it's built, it's so much easier on you because you're able to continually put more inventory into a business you've already built. Now, thinking about where you should invest, there are places you should not invest, or at least my opinion, like Washington, D.C. That's a really, really expensive, or San Francisco, almost basically anywhere on the along the coastlines are pretty expensive. I personally start telling all my students, Anywhere in the Midwest, getting down to the Southeast, like the Carolinas, down into Florida, those are there are some really good priced homes that you can buy for less. And the reason why I also remember that when I said, is it the right time or should I wait? The answer is yes. The reason why for both of those, it's not the right time to buy a $300,000 house as a rental, even if you're making $150 or $200 a month. The reason why if the market, and I'm saying if, if the market does crash and it comes down and it gets cut in half, you're potentially losing $150,000 on paper because you don't lose it until you sell it, but potentially $150,000. But if you buy a $80,000 house and that gets cut in half, that's only $40,000 that you're potentially losing if you had to fire sell it and get rid of it. Now, what my perspective is, if I'm buying a $300,000 house, I'd rather not. I'd rather buy $80,000 to $100,000 house that people will still absolutely rent because Everybody needs a place to live. That's really what it comes down to. As long as you can find a property manager that can manage it, contractor that can fix it up, and somebody that can rent it or will rent it, you're going to be making money. Because what's great, what's super amazing is, so I do not pay my taxes. I don't pay my insurance. I don't pay my property manager. I don't pay for rehab. I don't pay any of that stuff. My tenants pay every bit of that. And I just made the difference. And so what it really comes down to is income minus expenses. You 
add up, so it's just addition and subtraction, a little bit of multiplication. So addition, you add up all your expenses, property managers, taxes, all that sort of stuff, insurance, add all that up. Then you take your income, you subtract, and that difference is literally in your pocket as passive income with all the expenses taken care of. And when I say multiplication, one property making $250 a month, if you had 10 properties making $250 a month, that's $2,500 a month. So that's what I, it comes down to. If you're gonna invest, you number one, need to build the business right, but number two, buy the right properties in the right areas that are gonna making you passive income. So talking about sourcing the properties for a second here, what are some of your strategies for that? Are you looking on the MLS? Are you looking on sites like Zillow and Trulia? Are you hitting up local groups that may be real estate specific? I'd love to hear if you're thousands of miles away, how you're actually getting a solid gauge of whether or not this is a good investment property or not. So I'm going to say yes to all those. Every single way there is, I'm finding properties through Zillow. I have many realtors looking for properties for me. I find wholesalers, even from far away. I find wholesalers that send me deals. I, I love waking up in the morning, drinking my coffee, opening my email, and just looking at the list, laundry list of properties from every area of the country that I invest, wholesalers selling me deals. And I'm like, okay, no, no. Hey, this one might be good. Let me look further into this one. And so every single way I implement that into my business. So if I'm actively building in a certain city, I really hone in. Now, a big thing like you asked, Cody, is you also need to know the market. So you might be able to see if a property is fantastic or not, but you would only know if it's fantastic if you know what the other properties are in the area. Like it could be that a $50,000 house is terrific, but you wouldn't know that because you don't know what the price points are. It's kind of like if you're gonna buy a car, you're gonna look at every single car like it and see how much they normally go for, what the color, what the options are. You're gonna do so much research before you actually buy the car. So when you actually buy the car, you're like, man, this is a good deal. Same exact thing with real estate is you need to know your area. Now, here's a big tip that I'm gonna give everybody. It's common sense, but you need to drill this in your brain. If you're gonna be investing somewhere that's nowhere near you, you need to have a quarterback. You need to have the number one person on your team that's gonna watch your back. They're gonna score for you, basically make money for you. They're also gonna protect you by making sure that the properties are taken care of, you're getting the right tenants. That's your property manager. I mean, literally, your property manager, you should, and here's the tip, never ever buy a property that your property manager, again, this is common sense. If your property manager says it's not a good area, I won't manage it, don't buy a property. You don't wanna take that risk that you're gonna buy a property that somebody will not manage. And the reason why they won't manage it is because it's gonna be hard to manage, possibly bad tenants or not paying tenants or crime. So the tip is definitely, if you're gonna be doing any investing, have your property manager, who's your quarterback, tell you which property is good, which property is bad. You run everything through your property manager. So all the students that I have, that as I'm coaching them how to actually buy and find properties, Every single time they come to me and say, hey, Dustin, is this a good property for me to buy? Would you would you buy it? My first question is, what does your property manager say about this property? And the reason why is I'm not the expert at all. They are the experts. They know the area. They know if it's a good property, if it's a good area, and all that sort of stuff. So if you're going to be investing out of state, you need to have so many people be in your eyes and ears so that you can put that in your brain to eventually figure out if it's the right property to go with. That's some awesome feedback and some awesome insights into exactly how that process works. And I know me and Cody had a few other kind of like questions we wanted to ask about your opinion on a certain topic. So one thing I wanted to ask was, because you just mentioned that maybe it's not the right time to buy like this really expensive house on some of these hot markets, like on the, on the coastlines. 
What about people who say that you should never rent? Like you should always buy a home. What do you say to that if you're living like we do in Boston? So two sides of the, of the, the coin there. Some people say, never own, always rent, but you own things that you get, you make money. There's somebody I'm thinking specifically of who says he never owns a house that he lives in. He just rents it out, but he owns properties that make him money. That's his desire. That's what he wants. What I love is to actually own the house. And the reason why is because I can utilize other people's money, the OPM, other people's money by refinancing. And I've done this literally dozens of times, refinancing even my personal home, pulling money out, and it might increase my mortgage payment by like $200, $300 by pulling out forty dollars or $50,000. But I'll buy three properties with that. And I'll make a passive income of like $700, maybe $1,000 a month. It pays the difference of that mortgage. And I, put, I make more money. And plus, I have the property. So if you're thinking about should you rent or should you not, or you should you own, it really comes down to each person, in my opinion. So if you're literally living in Boston and to buy a house, you're going to be paying astronomical prices don't. Well, I'll give you an example also. So the house that I'm currently living in, it was a rental property of mine. I don't have a mortgage on it. And if I sold it, I would probably pocket, or I could sell it for $285,000. So after expenses, I'd probably pocket $250,000. Me right now, I'm thinking, you know what? It might be a great idea to sell and rent for a little while because I know the market will correct. And here's the thing. Back in 2008, 2009, when there was the crash, the market has literally, the economy and the market has been going up for the last 12 years. And normal market cycles are about seven to eight years where there's up and then a down and up and a down. But it's been going up forever. Now we have this corona stuff and it's kind of shaking up a little bit. But with the $2 trillion being pumped in, consumer sentiment's still pretty high. I don't think there's going to be a crash anytime soon or a correction. I'd say maybe in the next year or two, it very well could be. So to answer your question, Justin, if you should rent or you should own, there are absolute advantages to both. But what I'm actually looking at, if and when my house, because my house is nowhere near worth $300,000. Absolutely. Like I could build a great house for $300,000 and this is not the type of house that I would build. I could, if I could sell for $300,000, pocket it and rent $1,500. My goodness, if I rent until when it, when it actually comes down, I can buy another house. So for everything, I take all those factors into play and figure out what's best for me and my family. But honestly, by this time next year, if the price gets above 300,000, I'm like, I'm selling. Like there's no reason it should be this high. I'm pocketing, I'm, I'm cashing out. No, I appreciate that answer because I think well, that's all I was looking for was basically, a, you know, some people feel guilty for renting and we just wanted to kind of highlight that there probably are some very valid situations where renting is totally okay. I know I feel completely okay about it because, you know, we pay 1675 to rent this place Whereas it would probably cost me $600,000 to buy it. And it just doesn't make any sense. No, for me, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm right in your boat. And imagine buying a house to try to rent it to make money. You can't. $600,000, that mortgage payment's going to be, what, at least $2,500, if not almost $3,000 a month? Shoot, that's rent. That's so much better. <laughs> And so another topic you want to touch on, Dustin, and you have an article, the top 15 expensive mistakes real estate investors make. Obviously, we don't have to get into all 15, but I'd love if you could kind of just talk about some of those early mistakes, because yes, it would be awesome if all of our listeners went and made smart real estate investing decisions. But the last thing we want is for someone to cash out their 401k and make a bunch of terrible decisions and screw their financial future. The main ones that you're going to want to watch out for, and there are a lot of mistakes that you can actually make as an investor the biggest one you can ever make is buying a wrong property. Buying the wrong property that's gonna lose you money. Now you might think, hey, I might make 50 bucks a month. Well, 
$50 a month is not very much, or let's just round it up to $100. Let's say you're gonna make $100 in passive income from this one property. Well, in one year, that's only $1,200. If you have a furnace go out, if you have a roof that you had to repair or something like that, that $1,200 is gone. So you don't have any money to live off of. That's why I say the bare minimum that you should always get in passive income is $250 or more because that is $3,000 a year. That goes a long way, much further than just $100. So on top of that, another problem is if investors do not account for all the expenses, like accounting for rehab costs, like how much is gonna cost actually each month? Let me put aside money, save it for a future for capital expenses. Like, hey, eventually a furnace is gonna go out. Let me save for that. Let me put money towards repairs or if there's a plumbing leak, let me put money towards that. So if you don't do that, you're gonna get stuck. We're gonna have to use a credit card to actually pay to fix something. So those are another ones. Another big one is don't invest where a property manager will not manage or you can't get somebody else to manage. Now, some people might say, well, I'm gonna manage it myself. My strong suggestion is do not buy a property unless you can absolutely account for all those expenses and a property manager's expense because you never know. You may need to move and you can't manage it anymore. You have to get a property manager or sell it. Well, it'd be great if you already had that accounted for. If you already have that expense accounted for, that's extra money in your pocket because you're managing yourself. But whenever you move, like let's say you're like, you know what, shoot, I have 100 properties now. I'm gonna go ahead and move. Well, you're gonna take a big hit if you have to hire a property manager unless you've already accounted for that. Other ones are if you are not investing in areas that people actually want to live. That's a big thing is if it's high crime. Now, I will pause that quick thought that a lot of people, a lot of other investors try to talk about, are there jobs moving in or there's not a big you know, car company there or there's not a military installation or something like that. Well, everybody needs a place to live. The only criteria that I would suggest that could be would be problematic is if jobs are literally leaving and people are literally leaving that area. I'll give you an example. Obviously, Detroit. Detroit, there was tons and tons of business, people living there up until the crash in 2008. Then it was literally a ghost town. And so I would not invest there until it started picking back up because I don't want to try to catch a falling knife, you know, and hope to, I'm going to buy it now and it's eventually going to go back up or I think now is the bottom. No, I usually don't grab it at the bottom. So another big thing that I love to tell all my students is overestimate on your expenses and underestimate on your income. So your rent, let's say you think all your expenses total are going to be like, let's say $800 a month for all of your expenses. I would probably suggest tacking on an extra 10%, like throw another $80, maybe even round it up to $900. So round up your expenses because you never know what expenses might come. Like I'll give you an example. I started investing in Texas and I didn't know that in Texas, there is a city tax as well as a county tax. And the city tax is doubled the county. I only accounted for the county tax. And then, so county tax was 1,300. And then I get a $2,300 or $2,500 tax from the city. I was like, what in the, oh my goodness. So I didn't account for all my expenses. Good thing I actually did what I'm telling everybody to do is over account for your expenses, be on the conservative side on the high end. Now your rents, another big one is if you think you're gonna get $1,300, like that's a great, a good number. I would personally run my numbers at 1250, maybe even $1,200 if I could still make money at $1,200. If it's you know the end of the world and I still need to get it rented and then the lowest I could ever rent it is 1200, I'm still gonna be safe. And so over account for your expenses and your income. So th there's so many more, but I could keep going.
Dustin, there's been like a ton of fantastic information in here, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of work with people on helping them kind of get to their dreams and get into real estate and start up some businesses. And if people want to continue not only following along with your story, but maybe they want to reach out to you, where's the best place for them to do that? So I have a couple different sites that I, I just love. So masterpassiveincome.com, masterpassiveincome.com. That's where I do all my coaching. That's basically where I started doing in real estate. So what happened was I was investing in real estate and then I was quitting my job. And as I was quitting my job, people were asking me, well, how are you quitting your job? And then the second question is always, can you show me how to do it? So from there, I started Master Passive Income. I have my podcast, Master Passive Income Podcast, where I literally talk about rental properties all the time. And then from there, I also have successfullyunemployed.co. It's another podcast. That's more of a passion project. I've even interviewed Cody on there as well. He gave us so much great things about how to work for free and make a lot of money, which is, I loved it. It was a great, great episode. But Successfully Unemployed, that is another podcast. So I have two different podcasts. So you can find me both places. Awesome, man. And one thing we like to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one tip for those on the path to financial independence? Passive income by far. So if I were to go back and tell myself anything, really, it is the hard thing is when you first start hearing the terms about passive income, it starts to feel like maybe it is a get rich quick scheme or it's 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 something that's so out there that it's just crazy or it's almost impossible. There are so many ways to make passive income and it's super amazing to make passive income. You work one time and it comes back over and over. So if I were to go back and give myself any tips, it'd be find passive income so much more quickly. And think of like my skateboard manufacturing business or my graphic website design business, my newspaper business, or even like the convenience store or pizzeria. I have a bunch of little customers. Instead of having one big boss, I now have a bunch of little bosses. So if they don't come and buy from me, I don't make money. Now with passive income businesses, even if customers don't come, I still make money. So passive income, that's the only way that I achieve financial freedom. Dustin, that's a great tip. And you've had a lot of great information about the whole episode. And we almost have you out of here, but that we do have one last question that I didn't prepare for. Cody didn't prepare for. That's the wild card question. So are you ready for that, Dustin? I don't think so, but let's do it. <laughs> so I know that for most of your real estate, you say you've never even seen them. Like you don't go out there and see them in person and you're trying to do all this due diligence. But I have to imagine through buying 30 different rental properties, there's had to be something about one of these properties that just really surprised you. So I was wondering if you could tell us if you have an interesting story about one of these rental properties where when you bought it, good or bad, there was just something about it that you were not expecting. Actually, I did touch on both, and these are the biggest ones. So number one would be the taxes in Texas. Actually, it's in Houston was where this one particular property is. And so I didn't account for all the taxes. I thought I did. But I should have been asking more questions of realtors, property managers, and all that. Should have been asking more questions. But the other big one that was a big lesson learned was, no, I didn't talk about this one. So another one was the electrical. Remember, I talked about the electrical. I didn't know that he needed to replace. That was six, no, $3,500 for two properties, so $7,000. Another big one is I had my very, very first property manager. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just picked a property manager. Oh, you say you're a property manager? Okay, you go ahead and manage the property. In six months, they started stealing from me. And I it was so bad. I had like six properties. They started stealing from me. And I didn't know it until a, a lot of money later. And then I, I didn't actually sue them or anything because I didn't actually have proof. I just didn't have, like nothing was accounted for or it wasn't adding up. And so hiring the wrong property manager lost me so much money. But as soon as I realized that, I fired them right away, found another property manager that took over so much better. So finding the right property manager 
That, like I said, from the very, very beginning, that's your quarterback. That's the number one person that runs your business, makes sure that you don't have to do any work. In fact, back in 2018, I took my family to Japan for six weeks right after I quit my job. We went all 1,200 miles around the entire island of Japan for six weeks and didn't even have to worry about my business. And then in 2019, I went to Europe, all over Europe, went six weeks, 11 different countries with my wife and my four kids. And then we also went through the East Coast, went through four weeks on a 10 different state journey. It was so great because I don't work because I have the right property managers and getting the wrong property managers, they can start stealing from you and you lose a lot of money. Well, Dustin, I think you're being a bit humble there because you definitely work hard. You're one of the hardest working guys I know with all your different businesses, even if it's just a passion project. I know you even have another podcast. I think you said you do with your brother talking about random stuff. And so you're, you're a busy guy, even though you do have this passive income set up. And I can tell when you talk about real estate, you just get lit up, man. You can tell this is your passion. You love teaching people how to do it. And so thank you so much for a guy who has a ton of time for spending some of that time with us today. Thanks. And I really appreciate you having on the show. And if anybody gets anything out of this, it's, I, I, well, I definitely love this show. I've listened to it and everybody, it's, it's so possible to become financially free and have financial independence. And if you remember that long walk that I took down the hallway to see my boss's, my boss, where I got laid off, where I felt my, my, my feet were lead bricks. Well, I parked because I was working downtown. I literally parked. It was probably about three blocks away because I had to walk. I didn't want to pay. I'm really frugal. And so I walked that walk back and forth to my job for 10, 15, or however many years. That last walk I took from my office to my car, I felt like I was walking on clouds because now I was leaving that for good. So it is absolutely possible. You guys stick with Cody and Justin. You guys are absolutely going to in great hands and you're going to learn so much. I love being financially free and I'm looking forward to you being there as well. Now, Cody, it was fun definitely getting back into the real estate space again. What would you think about the episode? Yeah, I always love talking real estate because we've had so many friends that have had such incredible outcomes from real estate, whether it's retiring at 27 and 28 or having 100 properties that are spitting out you know millions of dollars a year or Dustin, who has 30 properties whose expenses are more than covered because he's still living that super frugal life. And I love that we could kind of dig in because Dustin is clearly a master of this trade. I mean, we definitely had to pick and pry to make sure we could get all the information that we wanted out of this episode because this is a guy who's been doing this for so many years. And he gave us a lot of really good tactical advice. Like number one, something I haven't really thought about before, but just like an easy math way to think about it is like don't invest in a property if you're not going to have at least $250 of that passive net cash flow every single month. And it was just a nice round number that Dustin uses with his students and with his audience. And I thought it was an easy way to conceptualize, like, how much money am I actually going to be making if I pick up 10 investment properties, if I pick out 15 investment properties? And so Dustin's like, it's just some easy addition, subtraction, and multiplication. If you're getting 250 bucks a month, at least, from all your properties, you have 10 properties, that's $2,500 a month. And so that's kind of what Dustin used as his proxy when he was going through his acquisition phase of like, okay, how many properties am I actually going to need if I'm using these parameters and these rules to hit this goal of financial independence? One of the things I really liked about the episode was how Dustin just had this untraditional view of traditional employment where, you know, he talks about your job and how that a lot of times you're only getting paid what they can pay you without them losing out on earnings. So it's definitely not what you're worth or what you could be being paid. But at the same time, you can tell that like it's valid when people struggle with thinking about walking away from a traditional job because Dustin himself had that like even after discovering real estate and that he was successful at it. 
It was another nine years and 30 houses later before he actually stepped away from that traditional career. So even someone who as focused as Dustin is and who believes this as much as Dustin does, it was still hard for him to walk away. So that's just something that I don't want listeners, you know, I think it's easy to kind of beat yourself up when you realize like, oh man, why am, why am I not making all this money on all these houses? Why am I still working at this job that is not my true passion? It's tough to do the transition. I mean, hopefully this can be some inspiration, but definitely don't beat yourself up over it. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's like one step at a time because a lot of times you don't even remember those little things that you did at the beginning. You don't remember the hours of combing through the MLS or Zillow or wherever to find that first investment property or the 30 different people that you vetted to figure out who is going to be an awesome property manager. Once you've already kind of had that 10 years in the past, you almost forget that that stuff happens. And then it's just like this golden pot at the end of the rainbow. So don't think that just because you don't have 30 houses and just because you aren't making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in passive income from your real estate investments, that's not something you should be beating yourself up about. It's never too late to start. If you're 65 listening to this podcast, you could still go and get yourself an investment property as long as you're doing the due diligence, making sure that it cash flows correctly. And real estate is an awesome vehicle for wealth creation. That's another thing Dustin was talking about. Like real estate, yes, it does have its tax advantages. Yes, real estate is awesome because everyone needs a place to live. And there's just all these other inherent benefits to real estate that does give it some advantages over, say, stock and bond investing. And now it's time for the call to action. The call to action this week is for those people who may be still on the sidelines. And I know we've had similar call to actions before, but really when you When you're sitting there and you're struggling with getting into real estate, a lot of the times it's because maybe the area around you is just too expensive and it doesn't make sense. And that's a valid reason to be scared of. But if you can do like Dustin did and find property managers you can really trust and lean on and be that quarterback that he mentioned, then those people can help you navigate those different neighborhoods and make sure that the math works before you make that purchase. And then you don't have to worry about the area that you are familiar with. You can utilize their knowledge and perspective. Love that call to action, Justin. Just like Dustin, your location does not have to be the thing holding you back from investing in real estate. And if you want to see any of the things we mentioned, any of the things we talked about with Dustin in this episode today, you can go and visit the show notes at thefyshow.com slash MPI. That's Master Passive Income or MPI. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.